Francis Schaeffer once said, when a man comes under the blood of Christ, his whole capacity as a man is refashioned. His soul is saved, yes, but so are his mind and his body. True spirituality means the lordship of Christ over the total man. For a lot of people, I think for probably most people, change in one form or another can be a real struggle, which is understandable because when something significant in your life changes, there's always an adjustment that has to be made, right, to whatever the new normal is. And I think for most people, that often involves some measure of struggle, just getting used to what is different after that change. And of course, the bigger the change, typically the bigger the struggle, because the more significantly things change in our lives, the more significantly your life is affected by that change, obviously. So with, th- with that in mind, consider what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. He said, if anyone is in Christ, meaning if anyone is a Christian, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come, 2 Corinthians 5.17. So you understand, when you become a Christian, when you, when you pass from death in Adam to new life in Christ, which we talked about last week in part one of this message, the change that occurs is cataclysmic to the rest of your life, because it is an all-encompassing, all-consuming change, meaning it affects every area of your life. It is, in fact, the single most profound and radical change that anyone could ever experience because when you are coming alive in Christ, you're not just believing in something new. You're actually becoming something new, which means your life, the life that previously existed, dies away as you become a new man or a new woman in Christ. And so it's not just a part of your life that changes when you come to him. It's why it's such a cataclysmic change. No, when you, when you come to Christ... Everything changes. Everything. Paul said the old has passed away. The old is deceased. Behold, the new has come. And yet there's this ongoing struggle that so many of us wrestle with in embracing that change, that new life, because we don't always want to completely let go of the old life. I think if we're being honest, we're eager for Jesus to add some great new stuff into our lives but not always so eager to let go of the old stuff in our lives. And, and, and what you end up with is Christians who are not fully committed to either life. Believers in Jesus Christ who are trying to live between two worlds, between two kingdoms, between two lives. But listen, Paul didn't say if anyone is in Christ, he has some new options. No, he said if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. You see, the real struggle is not that God didn't do enough in you when you came to him to meet all of your needs. No, the real struggle is that you haven't accepted all that God has already done in you when you came to Christ to meet all of your needs. Again, Paul didn't say the new is coming. No, he said the new has come. You have a new spirit. When you come to Christ, you have a new spirit, which means you have a new source of supply. It also means you have a new destiny. You have a new purpose. You have a new promise. You have a new family. You have a new name. You have a new passion, a new joy, a new peace, a new love. You have a new hope. You have a new life because you are a new creation, which means all of those new things are already yours. 
They're already inside of you when His Spirit takes up residence in you. It's not that something is missing and you need to figure out how to get it from God. He's already given you everything that you need to successfully navigate this life at the very center of His will. But you have to embrace it. You have to embrace those changes in your life because you cannot walk into something new without walking out of something else. And so if you're going to fully embrace the new, you have to let go of the old. Because the old has passed away, Paul says, the new has come. Listen, you, you cannot hold on to life in one hand and death in the other and expect there to be no conflict between the two. You hear me? You, you can't hold on to life in one hand and death in the other and expect there to be no conflict in your life between the two. Rather, when you learn to let go of the old life and fully embrace that new life that he's already given you, that's, well, that's when everything changes. That's why Paul also said, put off your old self. By the way, this was written to Christians. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. Obviously, it's possible for us to be saved, born again, true Christians, and at the same time still cling to the old self, even though it's dead and gone. It's the struggle between death and life that many of us still wrestle with, and yet Paul says it doesn't have to be that way. If you're alive in Christ, you can choose to put off, to reject your old self, your old life, to walk away once and for all from the former self and fully embrace your new life in Christ, or, or you can continue trying to live in both worlds which I think is what a lot of us do because we don't like change. First of all, we don't like disruption in our lives. And to be sure, the work of Christ in our lives is profoundly disruptive. It affects every single area of your life. The fact is there could be no bigger change in a person's life than to reject your old self and fully walk in the new life that you have in Christ. It's a profound change that requires profound adjustments to the way you live and the way you see the world. It's disruptive. And that isn't always easy, of course. Sometimes we choose the alternative then. We hold on to the dead weight of our old life with one hand and the hope of a new life with the other, and then we wonder why life is such a struggle. Well, look, you cannot hold on to life in one hand and death in the other and expect there to be no conflict between the two. This is the message Paul is trying to get across to the church then and now, as we'll see as we continue working our way through his letter to the Christians at the church in Rome. And this is part two of the sermon we started last week as we work our way through the entire letter ultimately. So let's pick the story back up where we left off last time and see what Paul continues to teach us about what life really looks like when you live it fully alive in Christ. And again, this is part two of last week's sermon. So if you're keeping an outline, last week we covered points one and two. We talked about new life, the new life you have when you're alive in Christ. That was point one in the outline. Then we talked about freedom from sin, which was point two. And so today as we get back into this text, uh, we'll pick the outline back up at point three. Okay, so let's read it together where we left off before. Romans chapter six, and we'll start with verses 12 through 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life 
and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under law, but under grace. So Paul reiterates that this letter, first of all, is written to Christians. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Clearly this was written to Christians because first of all, that's a statement that can only be made to a Christian. To the one who has had the old man crucified with Christ and has been given new life in Jesus Christ. Okay? Only the person set free from sin can be told, do not let sin reign. Right? You wouldn't make that statement to someone lost in the world. So that's not to say, of course, that Christians don't sin. We know better. Otherwise, Paul would have never even made this statement to a bunch of Christians to begin with. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. We all know from firsthand experience, don't we, that Christians still sin. The difference is we have a choice not to because we're no longer enslaved under the tyranny of sin, the rule of sin in our lives. Because when you're alive in Christ, you've been set free from the prison of sin, which again, we talked about last week, but that doesn't always stop us from subjecting ourselves again to the power and influence of sin in our lives because although we are in Christ, we are also still in the flesh, and sometimes we allow our flesh to rule. As I mentioned before, Christians are not held captive by sin against our will. On the contrary, we live in prisons that we build around ourselves. If, if your life is captured by sin right now, it's, it's a prison that you build around yourself because we're no longer subject to the dominion, the rule of sin. And of course, Paul knew that. Which brings us to the second reason this letter is written to Christians in this part of the letter in particular, because as Christians, we have an alternative that others don't. We have the ability to choose what we do with the abilities he gave us. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought forth from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, and so here's where it gets interesting because when Paul says do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, the word members that he uses there is the ancient Greek word melos, which refers to a person's mental or natural, excuse me, faculties. In other words, your mental and physical abilities. And the word instruments that he uses in the same verse is the Greek word hoplon, which is better translated as weapons. So Paul literally says, don't use your natural abilities as weapons for unrighteousness. Rather, use them as weapons for righteousness. In other words, when you become a Christian, when you came alive in Christ, the same natural abilities that God gave you from the day you were born that made you a good sinner, those are the same natural abilities that make you a good saint. You understand, when God created you, he made you exactly the way he meant to. The same abilities you possess that make you good at doing what's wrong are the same abilities that make you good at doing what's right. You see, when you become a Christian, your natural abilities don't change. What changes is what you choose to do with those natural abilities. And so if you're, for instance, a naturally gifted communicator before you're saved, You'll still be a naturally gifted communicator after you're saved. The only difference is what you choose to do with that ability that God has given you. If you're naturally athletic or mechanically inclined or emotionally intelligent or an overachiever or self-motivated or a deeply loyal person by nature before you're born again in Christ, you will still have all those same natural abilities after you're born again in Christ. The only difference is what you choose to do with those abilities. 
And so Paul says, listen, now that you're alive in Christ, sin will have no dominion over you, which means for the first time in your entire life, you are free now to use all of that natural ability that you've been using to serve yourself, to compete with others, to hurt others, to, to build up your own kingdom. Now you can use all those same abilities, those faculties to serve God and to build others up and to heal others and to build his kingdom. By the way, at times in your life, making those kinds of choices is going to be a fight. So Paul says, use those abilities that God gave you as weapons for righteousness. Use them to fight for his kingdom, not your own. Which at the end of the day, comes down to convictions. Because the only way your choices ever change is when your convictions change. Right? We all have convictions about most things, and those convictions shape the way we make our decisions, even the small ones, whether we realize it or not. The way we live, the way we interact with others, the way we work, the way we spend our time and energy and abilities, all of that is born out of our convictions, those firmly held beliefs that govern our lives and guide our decisions. And where, where did those convictions come from? Well, for the Christian, our convictions should come from the Word of God before us and the Spirit of God within us. And so, for instance, in the Gospel according to John, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another, just like that. By this, Jesus says, All people will know that you're my disciples. This is how the world will know you are really one of my followers. If you have love, for one another, John 13, 34, and 35. And, and so look, because I believe his word is true, I have a conviction that I am to love you like he loves me. And so I try to do that the best way that I can because there's a conviction based on the word of God before me and the spirit of God within me that my testimony to this world that I am in fact a Christian is dependent, wholly dependent upon how well I love you. But look, as much as I do love you, and as convicted as I am about loving you, sometimes I still have to fight not to love myself more. It's called compromise. And it's the enemy of our convictions. In fact, it's the enemy of the Christian life. And it's why Paul tells us to use all of our faculties, all of our natural abilities that we have as weapons to fight for what is right because as fallible human beings who are naturally inclined towards self, it's so easy for us to compromise. And I'm telling you, compromise is the insidious, life-stealing, joy-robbing, strength-sapping enemy of the Christian life. Compromise is treachery for a follower of Jesus Christ. Consider the life of Peter, a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Christ. He personally walked and served and lived with Jesus day after day after day as a part of Jesus's inner circle, even among those 12 men closest to him. Along with James and John, only Peter was present when Jesus raised the daughter of Jairus in Mark 5.37. And then again, only those three were with Jesus when he was transfigured on the mountain in Matthew 17.1. And only Peter and John were given the special responsibility of preparing the final Passover meal in Luke 22.8. You couldn't get any closer to Jesus than Peter was. And yet at times, Peter was more concerned with what other people thought about him than he was with what Jesus thought about him. And in those times, Peter often compromised his convictions. 
In Matthew 22, after Jesus explains to the disciples that he must suffer and die, Peter says, far be it from you, Lord. Uh Uh-uh. This will never happen to you. But he, meaning Jesus, turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In John 13, when Jesus began washing the disciples' feet, Peter says to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. John 18, as Jesus was preparing to give himself up peacefully to the Roman soldiers who had come to lead him to his death, Peter drew his sword and cut the ear off the high priest's servant. Jesus rebuked him, saying, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? You see, even as close to Jesus as Peter was, There was still a pattern of compromise in Peter's life because often he was more focused on the things of man than he was on the things of God. But listen, you can't hold on to life in one hand and death in the other and expect there to be no conflict between the two in your life. And so that compromise is what led Peter to deny Jesus in the courtyard of the high priest. Not once, not twice, but three times in Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 18. And it all starts with compromise. Think about it. What caused Adam to fall? What caused Moses to fall? What caused Jonah to fall? What caused David to fall? What caused Peter to fall? It's compromise. It's treachery to the follower of Jesus Christ. It is the enemy of the Christian life, and it is the ruin of our testimony. And yet, in the words of the prophet Isaiah, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Isaiah 53, 6. We are all guilty of the sin of Adam, of Jonah, of David, of Moses, of Peter. We have all compromised at times in our lives. We have all, every single one of us, gone astray to his own way. Not one of us is guiltless. And yet we're still commanded to present ourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, which we have. And our members to God as instruments, weapons for righteousness. In other words, even in spite of your sin, use your natural abilities, all of your faculties to fight against compromise in your own life and do it with prejudice. Because when it comes to living for Christ, there's no room for compromise. There's no room for half-heartedness. There's no room for middle ground where we hold life in one hand and death in the other. And yet that's exactly where many Christians live today. They focus a little on Christ and a lot on themselves. And that kind of compromise, when you compromise your devotion, which we'll talk about next, it only brings division in your own life and in the lives of those around you. Okay, division in a family always boils down to one or more of the members of that family focusing on themselves instead of on Christ and on each other. It's compromise. Division in relationships in general. We see it almost every week here. It always comes down to someone in that relationship focusing on themselves rather than on Christ or the other person. Division in the church is no different. It always comes down to people who are more focused on themselves. They're committed to, devoted to themselves and their own agenda more than they are devoted to Christ and to his body. And I'm telling you, when you compromise on your devotion to Christ, when you focus on yourself in life first, in the end, you will always lose more than you gain. This is why we struggle so often in our lives with understanding what God does or often does not do. Right? Because we've become so comfortable, so used to compromise, 
that we can't understand a God who isn't. Who isn't comfortable with compromise. It's also why we struggle to understand certain passages of Scripture like Exodus 32 and Numbers 25 where tens of thousands of people are wholesale put to death. It's why we can't understand Jesus when he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Sure, that's hyperbole. But it's also a very shocking and extreme thing to say, isn't it? That's why churches today don't typically practice Paul's teaching when he said as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him James teaches the same thing as does Jesus knowing that such a person is warped and sinfully self-condemned Titus 3 10 and 11 the truth is listen if we are confounded by these kinds of passages it's because we're not confounded by sin not the way Jesus was or the way the apostles were you see, when we become comfortable with compromise, it's hard to understand the consequences. But being alive in Christ, fully alive in Christ, means living without compromise. And I'm not talking about being perfect. I'm talking about being devoted to Christ above every other thing in our lives. And sure, we'll screw that up uh, along the way because we're all very imperfect human beings. But the posture of our daily lives is one of radical devotion to Christ. Because even though we still sin, we still have the choice not to. It's a daily decision we have to make every day, sometimes multiple times a day, to take up your cross and follow Jesus. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Okay, the only thing that can get in the way of you doing what is right is compromise in your own life. It's the enemy of the Christian life. It's trying to hold life in one hand and death in the other. But you have a choice to make. Every day you have a choice to make, to use all of the abilities, the faculties, the weapons that God has given you to fight for your convictions or to compromise your convictions by serving yourself with those very same abilities. The choice is yours and it's yours alone to make. Charles Spurgeon once said, the grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. Let's keep reading, verses 15 through 19. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin became obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification." And the first century people were well familiar with the concept and practice of slavery. And so Paul frames the point he's trying to make here in a context they could all understand. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. In other words, listen, I'm going to say this in a way you can all understand it and relate to it because what God demands from us 
Couldn't be any more extreme. And I don't want you to miss it. So again, he uses the practice of slavery, something they all understood to make his point. In fact, uh, Paul and the other New Testament writers make this very point over and over and over and over again throughout the New Testament. We just don't realize it because our English translations typically use a lot of other words as euphemisms for slave because we're uncomfortable with that word because the negative connotations that typically come along with that word. The truth is, though, when you read... If you read the New Testament in the ancient Greek, the original language, the vast majority of different words that are used in our English translations to describe Christians, like servants, bond servants, Christian, sheep, followers, on and on and on, by far and away, the word that was written in the Greek more than any other that we now translate into all these different English words is the Greek word doulos. It literally means slave. That's it. 124 times in the New Testament alone, the biblical writers refer to themselves and to you and me as doulas, slaves, 124 times. Believers are constantly referred to in the New Testament as slaves of God or slaves of Christ, or as Paul says here, slaves of righteousness, because to them, the terms Christian and slave were synonymous. For them, being a true Christian meant you were a slave of Christ, and so of course, it's important to understand what they meant when they said that. What was a slave in the first century? Well, Greek scholar Kenneth West described the first, first century slave as one whose will is swallowed up in the will of another. One who is bound to the master with bonds only death can break. And one who serves his master to the disregard of his own interests. Okay, a slave was someone who was owned by their master, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians when he talks about you and me, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. It doesn't get much more extreme than that, and yet at the same time, Paul says, present your members as slaves to righteousness. In other words, this is something you should do voluntarily. <laughs> Which, believe it or not, was also something that would have been commonly understood by the first recipients of this letter, because in the first century, people often became slaves voluntarily. Why? To save themselves from poverty and an early death because they were unable to obtain for themselves the provisions that they needed to survive. So they would offer themselves willingly to become slaves very often to benevolent masters who would take them in and treat them like family. In fact, as a result of their radical devotion to their new master, often the slave would be permitted to take on the family name as their own. Are you getting the picture? Paul says, look, every one of you is a slave to something, either to sin or to Christ. The choice is yours. One will destroy you. The other will save you. You choose. And so just to be clear, Paul says, let me just fill you in on something very important in terms that you can all understand. When you choose Christ, you're not just choosing to believe in something new. You are choosing to become something new, namely slaves of righteousness, radically devoted to Christ. It is the transfer from one master to another, from sin to God. It's your will being swallowed up in the will of another, bound to the master with bonds only death can break, serving your master even to the disregard of your own interests. 
It's a radical devotion to Christ. It's making decisions every single day that affect your relationship with him. In fact, ultimately, you know, it's not about how good or bad you want to be in this life. It's about how close to him you want to be in this life. That's why the devotion is so radical, not to perform for him, but to be close to him. Again, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. 1 Corinthians 10, 23. Why? Because although our salvation by God is fixed, you hear me? Although our salvation by God is fixed, our proximity to God is fluid. You cannot be more saved or less saved. You're either born again or you're not. But your closeness to God is not fixed. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, he's talking to Christians, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, in other words, since we have been saved by Jesus Christ, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. James 4, 8 says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Obviously, drawing close to God is a choice that we make. David wrote, oh God, you're my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalm 63, 1, he said, I follow hard after thee. David pursued God. It's the very picture of a man who radically devoted his life to God by pursuing closeness to God. And yet when we set our affections on earthly things, we're assuming that we can somehow gain enough from this world to be satisfied by it. We're assuming that this world, what it offers us apart from God, is somehow adequate for this life. (laughs) Listen to me. It will never be adequate. It's never going to be enough. That's the problem with sin. You always want more and more and more. It's never enough. Soren Kierkegaard, the 19th century Danish philosopher and theologian, says it this way. The sense of human adequacy is the primary barrier to genuine faith. I'm just going to say that part again. The sense of human adequacy is the primary barrier to genuine faith. Whether expressed as confidence in science, moral progress, or military might, the human feeling of self-reliance distances a person from his or her creator. You see, there's nothing inherently within us or in this world that will ever be adequate to meet our needs or satisfy our deepest longings because only Jesus Christ can do that. There's nothing in this world that will ever be adequate for us apart from Christ. Even an entire lifetime of accumulation and achievement cannot satisfy like one moment in the presence of Jesus Christ. And so we're left to choose. Every single day, we're left to choose. Will I devote myself today to Christ? Or will I devote myself to other things? Will I look for my deepest satisfaction in him or in the pursuits of this world? Will I eliminate with extreme prejudice everything in my life that stands between me and a closer relationship with Jesus? No compromise. Or will I allow a portion of it to remain? Because radical devotion is not a prayer in an altar at a church. No, it's a decision that that you make every single day 
And by the way, that decision doesn't just affect you. It affects the rest of the family. <clears throat> the church is only as strong in Christ as it is devoted to Christ. And yet the devotion of each one of us affects everyone else. As a parent, if your child decides to begin living contrary to the way you raised them, right? If they begin to rebel against you and your rules and your authority, it affects the entire family, doesn't it? Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Likewise, if a parent goes off the deep end and stops being a leader and a role model and a mentor to their spouse and their children, what happens? The entire family is affected. Don't tell me they aren't. If people that want to go through divorces that come to me and say, hey, my kids are good with it. No, they aren't. You're fooling yourself if you believe that. It's the same inside the church. Your brothers and sisters in Christ are affected by the degree to which your life is devoted to Christ. We have to stop pretending in this comfortable modern church culture that we're all living in today. We have to stop pretending that how I live my life spiritually is a private matter. A personal choice that is no one else's business as long as it isn't hurting anyone else. Because the fact is, it is hurting everyone else when you live your life less than fully devoted to Christ. I can't tell you how many people over the years were professing Christians. People who were professing Christians, when I've asked them about their spiritual life, they've responded with something along the lines of, well, that's a personal matter for me. Well, guess what? Your spiritual life is a personal matter for me too. Because whether you like it or not, we're both members of the same body according to scripture, which means if one member is not functioning as they were intended to, fully devoted to Christ, a slave to righteousness, it affects the entire body, not just you. We're missing this in the church today, which is why Paul wrote this letter to the church and not to the world, because he's not concerned about holding the world accountable. He's concerned with holding his brothers and sisters in Christ accountable just as we should be today. And so he's saying, listen, you have a choice to make. What's it going to be? Because in the words of Jesus, no one can serve two masters. Matthew 6, 24, you cannot hold life in one hand and death in the other and expect it not to affect your life or the lives of those around you. You have to be radically devoted to one or the other. Scottish pastor Alexander McLaren said this, the true position then for a man is to be God's slave. Absolute submission, unconditional obedience on the slave's part, and on the part of the master, complete ownership. The right of life and death, the right of disposing of all goods and chattels, that's possessions, the right of issuing of commandments without a reason, the right to expect that those commandments shall be swiftly, unhesitatingly, punctiliously, and completely performed. These things adhere to our relation to God. Bless the man who has learned that they do and has accepted them as his highest glory and the security of his most blessed life. For brethren, such submission, absolute and unconditional, the blending and the absorption of my own will in his will is the secret of all that makes manhood glorious and great and happy. In the New Testament, these names of slave and owner are transferred to Christians and Jesus Christ. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 20 to the end of the chapter. 
For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit you were getting at the time from the things of which you're now ashamed, for the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So uh, Paul closes out this part of the letter by saying, just in case you're not sure who your true master is, the, look, the proof's in the pudding. Just look at the spiritual fruit being produced in your own life. Are you getting more of the same out of your life today, more of what you were getting before faith in Christ, which ultimately leads to death, or is what's coming out of your life today the fruit of righteousness? Because that is, in fact, the distinguishing mark of all true believers. Okay, We, we all produce fruit, either good or bad fruit, according to Jesus in Matthew 7, according to Paul in this letter to the Romans. In fact, all the New Testament writers agree. You cannot hold life in one hand and death in the other and expect it not to affect the spiritual fruit that is produced in your life. So we all just need to be honest with ourselves in regard to what is coming out of our lives. Are you actually producing good spiritual fruit? Because if you're truly alive in Christ, then there will be evidence of that in what comes out of your life. Look, in every area of your life, in how you use the faculties, the natural abilities that God gave you, right? Uh, no one looks at an apple tree and wonders if it's producing apples, right? Because the apples are either hanging on the tree or they're not. It's obvious to everyone who sees that tree. And so there's an easy way to determine whether or not your life is producing spiritual fruit. Just ask yourself, and, and I talk about this from time to time, if you renounced your faith in Jesus Christ and his gospel tomorrow, what would change in your life? What would change as far as what's coming out of your life? How much would your life look different? Right? How different would your life look tomorrow after renouncing your faith in Christ than it does today while you still profess allegiance to him? What would change? Because if the answer is not much of anything, then I think we need to talk about what you're actually devoted to. Because you understand that's, that's why you exist. That's why you're here. To produce fruit in your life that glorifies God and points others to Him. You're not here. Listen, maybe you don't realize this. You're not here to make a name for yourself. You're not here to build your own kingdom. You're not here to make your mark on this world. You're not here to get the most out of this life that you can. No, you were put here on this earth for one reason, to produce good fruit. That's it. And so in order to help you do that, God's given you all of these faculties, these natural abilities and resources, time and talent and money and material possessions and wisdom and understanding and relationships and ambition. He's given you all of these faculties, not for you to build your kingdom, but for you to build his kingdom by producing good spiritual fruit, the fruit of righteousness. I just want to make sure we get this today because every single good thing that you have, you have for one purpose to help you produce more fruit. And yet there are untold numbers of Christians attending churches every week who have gifts and talents and resources and ambition that they've been given by God, natural abilities and resources meant to do good, to advance the kingdom of God, to make disciples, and yet instead of using all they've been given to produce fruit that glorifies God and points others to Him, instead they keep it all to themselves. 
It's like an apple tree not allowing anyone else to consume its apples because it wants to keep all that beautiful fruit to itself. Right? The apples might make the tree look beautiful and feel good about itself, but if the tree thinks that's the sole purpose of the apples, well, then it's completely missed the point of why it has the privilege of producing apples to begin with. Right? Because if you leave all those beautiful apples on the apple tree, what happens? They rot. And then they don't benefit the tree or anyone else. It's just wasted fruit. Okay, you cannot hold on to life in one hand and death in the other. You cannot hold on to everything God has given you for yourself and expect there to be good fruit coming out of your life that benefits anyone, including yourself. You understand, the apples are not produced for the consumption of the apple tree. The tree doesn't consume its own apples. The apples are produced for the consumption of others who are starving and need its fruit to be fed and to grow and to become healthy. That's the only reason the apple tree produces apples. To feed others. You get it? The reason you've been given all these natural abilities and resources is to give them away, to feed others the fruit that's being produced in your life. That's what being alive in Christ looks like. It's a fact. There's no way around it. You, you can have all the natural abilities, all the talent and the gifting and the wealth and success in the world. But if you're not producing spiritual fruit in your life, you will never be truly fulfilled, happy or healthy in this life. You won't be because God's design for your life is for you to produce good spiritual fruit for others. And so it doesn't matter how tall or how big around or how beautiful an apple tree grows. If that apple tree does not produce apples, it is not a healthy tree. And it cannot help anyone else become healthy either. And likewise, as Christians, we can look the part. We can go where Christians ought to go. We can consume what Christians are supposed to consume. We can grow in stature and influence and branch out in many directions in life. But if we never produce any spiritual fruit, then it doesn't matter how good we look because we're not spiritually healthy and we cannot help anyone else become spiritually healthy either. Pastor and author Jack Hiles once wrote, the greatest blessing in the whole world is being a blessing. Okay, the kind of devotion that God expects from us is nothing short of radical. It requires us to use every bit of our faculties, our natural abilities, talents, and resources as weapons in the fight for righteousness, first in our own lives and then in the lives of others. It's complete and total subjugation to Christ, who in turn confers upon us the family name when we submit our lives to him. And out of that comes the fruit of righteousness that you can't get any other way. Listen, it's a radical way to live your life, to be sure. And it means making a lot of changes from the way you used to live. And of course, change is hard. It's disruptive. Because true devotion to Christ won't allow you to hold on to life in one hand and death in the other. Not for long. At some point, you have to make a choice. A choice to change. A choice to use all of your faculties to fight for righteousness in your own life. To radically devote yourself to Him above all others. To produce good fruit in your life and then to give that fruit away.
It's a radical way to live your life. And it's a wonderful way to live your life. In fact, it is the most fulfilling and rewarding life you could ever live when you're alive in Christ. Let's pray.